The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, let's open our Bibles. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Tonight, we're going to be wrapping up our IF series. I've really gotten a lot out of this series. If you've been here with us in week one, we talked about the scripture that says, if God is for us, and we know that he is, then who can be against us? And then in the second segment, we talked about moving from what if fears and being dominated by what if scenarios and then being translated into even if faith. And then in week three, we talked about if you say to this mountain, so if you have faith and you say to this mountain, be picked up and removed and cast into the sea, then God will do that for you. And tonight, we're going to wrap things up by talking about this topic. If you want to see revival, by a show of hands, how many of you want to see a revival? Every hand should be up. That's what we're going to be talking about. I'll set things up with where we're going. The setting of this chapter and the passage that we're going to be looking at is the dedication of Solomon's temple, or it's David's temple, really, that he drew up the plans for and and acquired all of the, the parts for it and drew the designs for it. But then Solomon went ahead and built it. And upon its completion, he offers this beautiful prayer in which he asks God to give him the wisdom to lead the nation in a God-honoring way. And then upon the completion of that prayer, the chapter starts in the most incredible way with fire from heaven falling down and consuming the burnt offerings and the sacrifices that the people had set up. Now, that's cool. When you set up an offering and fire falls from heaven and consumes the offering, that's what happened upon the completion of Solomon's prayer. That's how you say amen in the house of God. Fire falls. And then after that, the Bible tells us that the glory of the Lord, so the the Chabad, the, the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God fills the temple and it overwhelms the people so that nobody, this is all of Israel that's gathered there to celebrate the dedication of the temple. Nobody can stand in the presence of God because when God shows up, the ground isn't low enough and you're hitting the ground. And so everybody is on their knees and they're on their face in the presence of the Lord because there's a a weightiness. In fact, that's what the word glory means. It means weighty. And there's something heavy about the glory of God. It's substantive. It's not the fluff of this world. And so the glory of God settles and the people hit the floor and they all begin to praise the Lord saying he is good and his love endures forever. And that's such a good phrase that I would love for us to just start tonight by saying that. Say, he is good and his love endures forever to me and to you. Amen. So that's what's going on. And then for the next two, pe- two weeks, the people are offering sacrifices. In fact, I think verse 5 tells us that, 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 that period, during that period, Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So that's a lot of sacrifices. It's a festive celebration. There's lots of joy and celebrating and worship and fellowship. And then after three weeks, Solomon's finally like, all right, y'all need to go home now. So he sends everyone away. And then the Lord shows up. 
So this is after three weeks of celebrating, experiencing the goodness of God, just basking in his glory and in his presence. And then in verse 12, it says, the Lord appeared to him, that's to Solomon, at night and said, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. Now, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if, everybody say if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. What God is doing here is he is answering the prayer that Solomon offered in chapter 6. You see, Solomon anticipated a future time in which the people of God, the Israelite nation, would turn their backs on God and walk away from him. And he knew that when they did that, that there would be consequences to those actions, that there would be some, some discipline that God would mete out because he loves his kids. And, and the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Did you know that? and that there are always consequences to sin. And that's true on an individual level, but it's also true on a national level as well. In fact, the Bible says this, godliness makes a nation great. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. We're supposed to be a nation that is built on godliness. In God we trust, our money says, doesn't it? How far we've fallen from that. Godliness makes a nation great, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So Solomon says, God, I know we're going to walk away from you. And when we do, you're going to have to bring discipline. And that discipline can take different forms. It might be um, this backsliding leads to all kinds of calamities. It might be a plague of locusts. He mentions several things. And so God says, when that happens, I want you to know that if my people who are called by my name, if, if, if they humble themselves and if they pray and if they seek my face, if they turn from their wicked ways, that I'm going to hear those prayers and my heart and my eyes will always be on this place. So that's really what this text is about. It's about how to get right with God. And I want to highlight verse 14 again, because this is really the heart of what God is saying here when he says, my people, if my people called by my name, if they, if they humble themselves, if they pray, if they seek my face, if they turn from their wicked ways, then I'm going to hear, then I'm going to forgive, and then I'm going to heal. Now, any time where your prayers are being answered and your sins are being forgiven and your land and your home and your heart is getting healed, that is the very picture and definition of revival. This is what we need across America. We need our lands healed. We need our hearts healed. We need our prayers heard and we need our sins forgiven. But it all hinges on the if. Did you notice how verse 14 starts with the word if, if? If you want to see revival, 
then there are some conditions that need to be met. Now, I want to start by defining terms here. What do we mean when we talk about revival? Because preachers love the word revival. We preach about revival. In the old days, they used to hold revival meetings that would go on for days. So what do we mean by that? Well, the word revival comes from a Latin word, and it's two parts. Re means again, and vive, or vive, means life. So it's life again. Revival means to live again. It describes the state of things when the Spirit of God awakens a person, an individual, or a group from their dormant state. Now, this can happen, again, as I said, in an individual level. In fact, it needs to start there. One of my favorite quotes is, if you want to start a revival, go home and into your prayer closet and draw a circle around yourself and then begin to pray that God would set on fire everything within that circle. And once he's answered that prayer, revival will have started. So revival needs to start with each one of us. Amen? But it doesn't end there. Churches can experience revival. Sometimes entire nations can experience revival. One of the greatest revivals ever came as a result of the preaching of Jonah in Nineveh. An entire nation repented. And again, one of the greatest revivals of the last 100 years was the Jesus People Revival. In fact, this church was born out of that revival that sprung up in the 60s and 70s with Chuck Smith and all of that. And so for those of us who are here, obviously you're here, you're hungry for the Word of God. You're in church on a Wednesday night, which tells me this. You want revival. I want revival. We want revival. Well, if we want revival to break out in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, and in our city, then this verse outlines the things that need to be in place to make that happen. Now, having said all of that, I want to be careful here. Because this verse is not just like a recipe for revival. Like if you add a little of this and you add a little of that, it's not like one of those um, boxes that you buy at the store and all you have to do is adds uh, two eggs and a little bit of oil and the contents of the box, and you stir that all together and pour it in a pan and throw it in the oven, and then 40 minutes later, you've got a coffee cake. It doesn't work like that. What this verse is doing is it's giving us the parameters within which God finds an atmosphere that is conducive to revival. In other words, what we're talking about here is creating the kind of space where God is free to move and do what he always and already wants to do. And that's what we're about here. We're just about creating an opportunity, an atmosphere where God can show up, interrupt, and speak into our hearts. That's what's going on here tonight. And when he does that, watch out because things start to change. So what are these conditions for revival? Well, the first one is that you must be part of God's family. Notice how verse 14 begins. If my people who are called by my name, that's what God's saying. He's talking to his people. He's not just speaking to everyone generally. He's not promising to answer all the prayers of every unbeliever and every person and, and heal everyone everywhere. He's talking to those people who are called by his name. Now, in this specific instance, God is talking to the nation of Israel. You're like, well, I guess that precludes me. I am not an Israelite. I'm not Jewish, you would say. Well, hold on. 
That doesn't mean you're not one of his people. You see, we've been grafted in, the Bible says. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, you are one of God's people. You are part of his adopted family. First Peter 2.9 says it like this. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Have you learned to think of yourself in that light? Do you ever walk around saying, yeah, I'm chosen, royal, I'm a priest, holy, I'm special. That's how God sees you. And you should never forget who you are, or more importantly, whose you are. You are special, you are holy, you are unique, you are royal, you are chosen. And then I like what Paul wrote in Titus 2.14, because this is equally true. He said that we're peculiar. Somebody say amen if you're peculiar. I love what Paul said. He said, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now that can be translated as special or unique, but I like peculiar. I think it fits. Certainly it does fit with me. Zealous for good work. So again, we're called by his name, adopted into his family. John 1.12, to as many as received him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. In fact, did you know this, that the word Christian, it was a label that was put on believers or followers of Jesus in the first century in the book of Acts. You can read about it. It's in chapter 10. And it's, it was in this place called Antioch. And, and, and the pagans, the unbelievers, they kept looking at these followers of Jesus. And it's like they, they wanted to just put a derogatory term on these believers. They're like, it's like a bunch of little Christs running around. They're little Christians, little Christ. That's what it means. It's like we wear the name tag of Jesus, and so we should reflect the love and the life of Jesus in the way that we go about our business. We're God's family. And what God is telling us in this verse is that he wants to wake us up because there are those times when we don't act out who we are on the inside. And so when that happens, God says, here's how you get right with me. And that's what revival is all about. You see, we often associate revival with God bringing in this harvest of the unsaved. And certainly that's part of revival. But revival starts, it always starts with the church. Revival begins in the house of the Lord. And if we want to see God do a work out there, we need it to begin in here. Amen? Now, once you meet that first condition and you're part of God's family, then what we're going to see is that there are four other or four more conditions that we need to also meet if we want to see God bring revival. So what's the next one? Well, he goes on. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves. So this is the first prerequisite. This is kind of the gate that opens up the door to all the other blessings that we're going to read about. Humility is the gate through which all of God's blessings flow. Now, what does the word humble mean? Well, it literally means, get this, to bend the knee, to go under, to bring down, to place yourself under another. And so when you bend the knee before Jesus, that is a, a posture of humility. You can say it like this. Humility embraces the reality that I'm not God. <laughs> now, that should be easy for us, right? And yet how hard it is. Humility embraces that reality, 
that we don't have all the answers, that we don't have the brains or the brawn to figure it all out. Some people think wrongly that humility means that you need to have a low opinion of yourself. And I would disagree with that. I like what C.S. Lewis said on this point, that great author from a generation ago. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. (laughs) Does that make sense? Now, the ultimate example of humility comes, of course, from Jesus, who in Philippians 2, we're told about, the Apostle Paul wrote this about Jesus. He said, in your relationships with another or with others, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So let this mindset that that Jesus had also be the mindset that you wear, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. Listen, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, we've all seen those movies where a person starts with nothing and They build this life for themselves and they accumulate wealth or riches or fame or whatever we call such stories rags to riches tales. Well, Jesus' story is the inverse of that, isn't it? His isn't a rags to riches tale, but rather it's a riches to rags tale. He was God. He had it all. But he left heaven. And rather than demanding that everyone on earth serve him, he assumed the posture of a servant and turned around and served the world. He humbled himself. himself. Now, my favorite example of this is that scene in John's gospel where he got up from dinner and wrapped himself in a towel and then began to go from disciple to disciple and he washed their feet. He served them in that way. Think about that picture for a moment. The one with the highest position humbled himself and took the lowest place. And then he said that we should go and do the same. Now, that's humility. Of course, the the opposite of humility would be pride. And it's important that we talk about this, too, because this is going to hinder or block the flow of grace that God wants to pour in our lives. So if humility is reflected in the attitude that says, I can't, but God can, then pride's the, the attitude that says, I can do it on my own. I don't need God. And we all have to fight this. I mean, pride was the original sin. It was what caused Satan to rebel against God. It's also pride that caused Adam and Eve to sit in the garden. In fact, in this list that we find in Proverbs 6 of seven things God hates, did you know that at the top of that list, the the very first thing that's mentioned is a proud look, Proverbs 6, 19. So pride is the one sin that will actually cause God to actively oppose you. Did you know that? He will go to war with you if you are proud. Why is that? Because pride is the one thing that God, he can't work with, which is why God gives grace to the humble, the Bible says, but resists the proud. You see, God's grace is like water in that it always flows to the lowest and humblest places. And what pride does is it acts like a dam that stops the flow of that grace. And that's why God opposes the proud. The other thing you need to know about pride is is that it always sets you up for a fall. You know, the Bible verse that says pride comes before 
a fall, right? Now, my favorite story that illustrates this involves the boxing legend Muhammad Ali. And the story goes that one time he was on a plane that was getting ready to take off. And he had a big personality. And so he's standing up and going up and down the aisles and just kind of entertaining the crowd and keeping people laughing. But the pilot wants to get the plane off the ground. And so he sends a stewardess back to tell Mr. Ali to sit down. And and she interrupts him and says, Mr. Ali, we need you to sit down and buckle up so we can take off. And he looked at her and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she shot right back. Yeah, well, Superman don't need a plane either. So sit down and buckle up. (laughs) He got humbled. Now, you can either humble yourself or you can allow God to humble you. I would contend that you want to humble yourself because if you wait for God to humble you, it's not going to be as pleasant of an experience, okay? But either way, you're going to end up humbled. So that's the first thing. You got to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, as the scriptures say. Now let's talk about the second thing our text says if you, you need to do if you want to see revival happen, which is pray. Now this goes hand in hand with the first one, right? Because what prayer essentially is, is it's humility in action. If you realize you can, then the next logical step is I need to look up because only God can. Now, prayer is paramount. It's foundational and it's essential. And it's so significant that God actually points to it as a sign or an evidence that someone has truly had an encounter with the risen Lord. So in Acts chapter 9, we have the story of Saul of Tarsus and his conversion, his radical conversion on the Damascus road. And he was knocked to the ground by this blinding light. And in the encounter, he was struck with blindness. And he was led by friends into the city of Damascus, where he stayed blind for three days. And then God goes and finds this man named Ananias. And he taps him on the shoulder. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go and pray for Saul so that he can recover his sight. And Ananias gets in an argument with God. He says, God, I don't know if you know about Saul, but he's developed a very well-earned reputation for persecuting Christians. So I don't know that this is such a great strategy here. And God says, no, no, no. I want you to go and pray for him. And then he says this, for behold, he's praying. As though that were the evidence, that were the sign that Saul had had a true encounter with the living God. Now, Saul, of course, was a Pharisee, which meant he had spent his life saying his prayers. But for the first time in his life, he was actually praying. And for God, that was a sign that he had truly had a change of heart. Now, if we want to see revival happen, then we too need to begin to pray. I'm sure it's possible to pray without seeing revival, but you'll never see revival without prayer. It's what led Jesus to say this. The harvest, it's great, but the workers are few. So what should we do? Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his field. This is where it begins. I I love what the great preacher Leonard Ravenhill had to say about what he saw as the, the, the necessity or the lack of prayer in churches across America. He said, the church is dying on its feet because it's not living on its knees. A, new, uh, a very true indictment of the church. We need to pray for revival. And I don't just mean like throw up a few prayers here and there. We need to really pray for revival. So there's this great story about 
the evangelist D.L. Moody. And on one occasion, he found himself in England just on vacation. He wasn't over there to preach. And while he was touring around the city, this preacher recognized him and ran up to him and said, Mr. Moody, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's you. You have to come to my church this weekend and preach. It would be the greatest honor. And Moody actually accepted, which would be pretty cool. And so Mr. Moody shows up and he preaches to this congregation. And upon completing that, he went back and wrote in his journal that he had never preached to a more dead crowd than that. And the only thing worse than having to preach to those people was that he had already committed to preaching again that night. <laughs> so it didn't go that well. <laughs> well, he went back that night and something strange happened. In the middle of his message, he felt compelled to ask if anybody wanted to receive Christ. And a bunch of people stood up. And he was confused by this because they had seemed so dead before. He said, I'm not sure you understand what I'm asking here. So when we dismiss the crowds, there's a little room over here. Come and, and meet with me in this little room if you really want to give your life to Christ. And, and so sure enough, he goes to the room after the service, and it's packed with people. And he prays with them the sinner's prayer to receive Christ. And he looks at the pastor, and he says, that is the strangest thing. I don't understand it at all. Do you? He goes, no. But you should come back tomorrow and preach. And Mr. Moody's like, I can't. i got to get back on vacation. And so the following morning, D.L. Moody gets on a boat, and he heads to Ireland to continue his vacation. But by the time he got there, a telegram had beaten him there, and it was waiting for him. And the telegram said this, come back to England. Revival has broken out. So what else could he do? Moody got back on the next boat and went back to that church, and he preached for the next 10 nights. And during that time, some 400 people responded and gave their lives to Jesus. Those people were dead. But then something happened that changed everything. They began to look into things, and what did they find? Well, what they found was that for some time, this 80-year-old invalid widow named Mary Ann Alderad had read one of his sermons in the newspaper and begun to pray daily that God would send D.L. Moody to her church in England so that revival would break out. That's what you call revival praying. That's what revival prayers can do. It's not just a casual kind of throwing it up. God, it would be nice if you could. But it's devoted, continual seeking of God's face which is the next thing we need to do if we want to see revival break out. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Now, the word seek, it doesn't describe a casual, half-hearted, disinterested inquiry, but rather it describes a diligent pursuit. Think about that verse where Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock for whoever asks, finds, and whoever, whoever asks, receives, whoever seeks, finds, and whoever knocks has the door open to them. Now, the words in each instance are written in a, a verb tense that describes continual action. He's saying, keep on seeking. Once you've begun, don't stop. Now, the question I have is, why? As I was thinking about this and wrestling through this text, preparing to the message for you guys, I was like, why does God want us to continually seek him? Is it because he enjoys playing hard to get? You know, like we're running after him and he's running away. <laughs> Is it because he's playing some kind of twisted, sick, cosmic game of hide and seek? Why does God desire to be sought out? I'll tell you what I thought about. 
I think it's that he just wants to be wanted and he longs to be longed for. In that regard, he's really no different than any of us, right? We're, we're all, we've all been in, found ourselves in that situation where you're talking with someone, but they're not really paying attention to you. They're kind of looking over your shoulder, looking at who they can talk to next, or they're, you're talking to them and they check their phones or they're kind of like tuned out or they're like, oh, I'm sorry, did you say something? And they're only half interested in what you have to say. We want the people we're talking to to be totally involved and to be really with us. Well, God's no different. He wants our undivided attention, which is why he says this. You will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now, now tune in here. Some of you have yet to find God because you're only seeking him with half of your heart. You're kind of committed. You're half-heartedly engaged. And God's saying, you haven't found me because you're not totally involved. I want your undivided attention. And I want to dig into this a little bit more because I think there's really something to this whole idea of seeking the face of God. What does that mean? Seek the face of God. It sounds so esoteric. Well, the word face it can literally be translated and often is translated as presence. So to seek the face of God is to seek the presence of God, to dwell in the presence of God. But even still, I think there's something beautiful about the idea of, of seeking his actual face. Why? Well, a person's face reveals a lot about them, right? Their character, their personality. Like the old saying goes, the eyes are the window to the soul. When you look into a person's eyes. When we look someone in the face, we get a sense of their mood. We, we get an, an idea of what they're thinking about. You can tell if they're happy or they're sad. And when you look in someone's eyes and you're engaged in that way, it lets them know that you're prepared and ready to listen to whatever they have to say. And it's the same way with seeking God's face. When we seek God's face, it means we're giving him our undivided attention, that we're tuning into his voice that we're seeking to know him, understand his heart, and know what he wants us to do. That leads to the last thing in our text. If you want to see revival, you need to be part of God's family. You need to humble yourself. You need to pray. You need to seek God's face. And then the, the fourth thing he says is you need to turn from your wicked ways. This is that old-fashioned word, repentance. Now, Repentance is not a dirty word. Repentance is a beautiful concept and idea. Our problem, I think, a lot of times is that instead of repenting of our sins, we try to rationalize our sins. You know what rationalizing is? It's telling yourself rational lies. It's coming up with excuses. It's saying things like, you know what? I know the Bible says this is wrong, but ugh, I've worked hard and I deserve this. Nobody's going to get hurt. It's not a big deal. I need this to help take the edge off. I work in a really stressful environment. God understands. The rules don't apply to me, and so on and so forth. We rationalize away our sins. Now, the word repentance, it literally means to change direction. You've been walking in one direction, and you repent means you about face, and you begin to head in the opposite direction. You realize that the path you're on is leading you towards destruction. A great example of repentance in action would be Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, who, the story, a famous story Jesus told where he takes, his, 
inheritance from his father and he goes and squanders it on riotous living, partying, so on and so forth. But then one day he wakes up and all of his friends and all of his money's gone and he's sitting there in a pigsty and he's wondering what happened. The Bible says he came to himself and he remembered his father's house and he said, I'm going to return to my father's house and I'm no longer worthy to be called his son, but I'm going to ask him to take me back as a servant. And so he begins to go back home. This is what repentance is. Repentance is going back home to your father's house. And I love that story because the Bible tells us that while he was still a long ways off, that the father saw him, which means that the father was scanning the horizon every morning looking for his lost son. And when he saw him a long ways off, he didn't wait till the son got all the way home, but he ran to meet him. And when he found him, he scooped him up in his arms and he smothered him with kisses and he took the robe off his back and he covered his son's rags with his own robe and he took the ring off his finger, the signet ring that symbolized his standing and position in the family and he put it on his son's finger and he took the sandals off his feet and he covered his son's feet and he said, slaughter the fattened calf for my son who is dead is living. This is repentance. It's coming home. It's finding forgiveness. Now, when you walk through the progression of everything we've talked about tonight, you'll see that it really flows from one thing to the next. You see, humility leads to prayer. Prayer leads to seeking God's face. Seeking God's face leads to turning from our wicked ways. It all progressively leads from one thing to the next. And if we'll do these things, humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, then, if, then, if you do these things, God says, then I will move from heaven on your behalf. I will hear your prayers. Now, is there anything better than knowing that God hears your prayers? And when he hears, the insinuation is that he also then answers those prayers. I love this scripture. John, uh, 1 John 5, 14 says it like this. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked for. Again, that's 1 John 5, 14. God wants to answer your prayers. He also wants to forgive your sins. I love what David said about this in Psalm 32, one, after he had been found out and exposed with his sin in, in Bathsheba and that whole escapade, and he repented of his sins. And Nathan the prophet said, and God has put away your sins. David went home and he wrote this beautiful song, and part of what he wrote was this, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. God wants to forgive your sin and he wants to heal your land. There is a healing that I believe God wants to do in our lives, many of our lives tonight. He wants to heal the hurts from your past. He wants to heal your heart. He wants to heal your mind. He wants to heal your emotions. He wants to touch and revive your soul tonight. There is healing that flows from his wings. There is healing that flows in the power and the presence of God is in this place. And God is not incapable or unwilling. He longs to heal. But we've got to do the if, if we want to experience the then. 
So the questions I wanna leave you with tonight are, do you meet those conditions? Are you one of God's kids? Are you one of his people? Have you humbled yourself or are you filled with pride? I don't need anyone else. I can do it on my own. Have you prayed? Have you reached out to God in prayer? Have you turned from your sins? I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Jesus, I pray that you would move mightily in the next few moments here as we transition into a time of response. And the, the appropriate response for a message like this is repentance. If you want your sins forgiven, if you want your heart renewed, if you want God to take out the stony heart that you've been living with and you want him to replace it with a soft heart, a heart that longs to fulfill and carry out his will. If you want to be saved, if you want your name written in the Lamb's book of life, if you've wandered from God and you find yourself in a far country like the prodigal son that we talked about a few moments ago, and you're ready to come home tonight, would you do me a favor? Would you just raise your hand? Raise your hand and then you can put it back down. Praise the Lord for the hands that are going up all across this room. For those of you who raised your hand, you can just simply offer up a prayer like this. And let's just all repeat after me together as a way of renewing our commitment to walk with Jesus. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm so sorry for the things that I've done that have led me down destructive paths. I admit my sin and I confess it and I forsake it. Now I'm asking you to answer my prayer and fill me with your Holy Spirit and wash me and cleanse me and heal my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.